how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 416, where I sat down with Cynthia Covey-Holler, the daughter of Stephen Covey and co-author of Live Life in Crescendo. Why do you think I get up every day, joked Stephen Covey, author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. His daughter, Cynthia, had just asked him if he would ever write a book as good as the 1989 classic. The result, Live Life in Crescendo. Co-author with his daughter, Cynthia, Stephen Covey's Live Life in Crescendo, Your Most Important Work is Always Ahead of You, was the author's mission statement in life. Because you asked that, you have to help, he told his daughter. In this interview, Cynthia talks about her promise to her father to finish the book after his passing, why you can't contribute to the world at any age, the importance of living a life of service, why you can't live life looking in the rearview mirror, and how to live life in crescendo. If it's your first time here, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And I'm also giving away my first book, Ink by the Barrel, Secrets from Prolific Writers, based on this podcast. That's the book and audiobook over at brockswinson.com. How I became an author was kind of an unlikely story. Clear back in 2008, I was just uh, talking with my dad about all the, he was telling me all these different projects he'd got, he was going, he was doing. And um, I just said, foolishly, I said, hey, are you going to write anything as good as Seven Habits again? <laughs> He's like, oh, wow, thanks a lot. I wrote that in 1989. <laughs> How do you think I get up every day? You know, I've got more ideas than just what were contained in the Seven Habits. And one of them was his personal mission statement, uh, which became this book, Live Life in Crescendo. Um, your most important work is always ahead of you. And so he said, you know, because you asked that, you got to help me. I've got several books going. And and uh, what if you get all the stories and examples um, of people that live in Crescendo and put it together, make it a real practical book that you can apply to your life and we'll kind of work on it together. So we did that for a little while. And then he, he unfortunately passed away way earlier than we ever thought he would. He was in good health and good shape. But um, so I, I promised him that I would finish this book. It was meant a lot to him to get this crescendo mentality idea out. And so it took me 10 years. It was, it was not easy. Writing is, t is tough and um, it took forever, but I finally finished it. And I was grateful that Simon and Schuster, who published The Seven Habits, of highly effective people has published his last book now just came out in september and there, there's kind of some some golden handcuffs of such a popular book the seven habits of highly effective people um did he see it as added pressure or was it just more about always continuing to put the best work forward how did he think about it i, I imagine he wasn't really trying to top himself so much as like move on in a, a linear fashion right and that's what um that's the whole idea of of his mission statement, living in crescendo, is that no matter what age or stage you're at, you keep contributing, you keep learning, you keep growing. And so I don't think he ever thought to himself, I've got to make this as good as seven habits. 
he just, his mentality was more, I have some ideas that I'd like to contribute that hopefully will inspire people to be uh, great leaders, to be able to bring out their potential and the greatness within each person. And so that was his motivation more than I've got to top my last book. It wasn't his mentality at all. It, when I asked him, that was kind of mine, but yeah. it wasn't his. Yeah, a lot of that is also like it's the most popular book. I've heard the writers of Casablanca say that's not their favorite script that they wrote, <laughs> even though the world yeah. would say it's one of the best films ever made. So kind of tell me, where where was he at with maybe the drafts when you came in, and how did you kind of start to take over? Um, we just, he, I mostly, he wanted me to just interview him to ask him questions about this idea of crescendo. And he he talked to, uh, you know, the idea is, are you musical at all, Brock? Um, not very. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, we're not either. I'm surprised. <laughs> my mom had a beautiful singing voice, but um, my dad didn't at all, and I don't. I've got a little cold today, so I hope you can understand me. But, um, crescendo if you've been to a concert, it, it the music grows in power and energy and intensity. And it's fantastic to listen to a crescendo. It keeps swelling. Where the opposite sign is diminuendo. And when they cut, that is when the music slows and lessens and the energy is, is stopping and pretty soon it comes to an end. And so, um, we discussed this this principle um, and he wanted me to just go out in the world and find examples from all over of different ages and stages of people and setbacks and things that people are going through where they could, where it was obvious they had a choice to choose between living in crescendo or choosing diminuendo and fading away and having no power or influence. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I, I wrote most, I wrote most of the book. He, he, um, it was, they're his ideas. And that's why I speak in his voice. And I say that at the beginning that these are his ideas, um, uniquely his. And I'm speaking in his voice and representing him, um, since he passed away. But he, that's how we kind of, that was kind of our deal that he wanted me to, to make it a real practical book with stories showing this mentality. Is, is there a story that comes to mind you'd like to share? Because it is true that if people are thinking of, of Stephen as an author, they're especially outsiders who don't really know him as a person. They're picturing the superhero who wrote this book years ago yeah. and changed millions alive, which of course is true. <laughs> um, tell me one of the stories about, especially someone who has to overcome something. Okay. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite stories in the book is about a man named a Anthony Ray Hinton. And he was, um, he was in his thirties uh, and he lived in Alabama and this is in 1989. And he was um, basically framed for two murders. He was convicted of killing two people when he was in a lockdown facility, 15 miles away from the crimes and had a great alibi. They, they really didn't have any evidence, but it was, it actually was a racial, um, you know, they got him on that on race. And they just had to pin it on somebody. And like I said, it was in 89. And so he was innocent and was a good person and trusted in the legal system, which totally betrayed him at this point. And so he, he, he found himself convicted to not just life imprisonment, to be on death row in Birmingham. And so he was devastated. He goes into his jail cell and he is so angry and so, um, terribly disappointed that he's been let down by the legal system, that he throws his Bible under his bed and determines 
if they think I'm guilty, if they are going to do this to me, put me on death row, I'm done. And so he basically for three years shuts down in his life. He doesn't speak to anyone, not the, not his fellow inmates, not the guards, no one who interacts with him except his family and friends that visit him. Um, he didn't speak at all. And he was miserable. And um, so in the middle of the night, he tells um, of hearing an inmate right next to him who was just crying and sobbing and begging for someone to help him with his pain. And this awoke in Ray um, a compassion that he had suppressed and the good person that he was. And he realized, you know, I, I, I still have choices. I can't choose if I'm on death row, but I can choose I can choose hope and compassion and love and um, or despair. And all these are still his choices. So he broke his three years of silence, found out that the, the man next to him who was suffering, his, he'd just gotten word that his mother had just passed away. And he was so devastated. And he spent the night comforting this complete stranger, giving him the hope to hang on and to believe that, that things could get better and that he could make it. And then from then on, he determined, like, like I said, he, he got uh, his Bible back under his bed, dragged it out and said, you know, I'm not going to let this overcome me. And for the next, you can't believe, but um, like 20, 28 years, he became a light and a beacon to all those on death row, to his fellow guards, to different people, I mean, fellow inmates, to the guards, to the point where the guards believed his story, believed that he was innocent and got him in contact with Brian Stevenson. I don't know if you're uh, you're familiar with him. He's the lawyer from um, Equal Justice Initiative that wrote Just Mercy, and they mm -hmm. made him out of yeah. it. Mm -hmm. And so Brian Stevenson got on his case. Well, it took another, you know, years and years of appeals, and he finally made it all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. He was completely exonerated from all charges. It was totally false and set free. And he um, came out of, while he, while he was there, he started a book club. He, he got other people uh, to transform themselves, the inmates, to leave their surroundings through these characters and through talking about ideas. He used humor and, and kindness and really influenced a lot of people there. Well, he comes out of prison um, almost 30 years after, after being incarcerated. And he says to his family and friends, the sun does shine. And that became a New York Times bestselling book three years later about his journey where he lived, not where he learned uh, not only to, to survive, but to thrive on death row and to make something of it. So now you think of uh, Brian Stevenson while he was in jail and not speaking for three years, his life was in, in diminuendo. He was shut down. He had no influence or power with any other people. He was miserable. He wasn't contributing. He wasn't learning. As soon as he changed that mentality and decided, I have choices. I can choose how to respond to what's happened to me. I can't choose what happened to me, but I can choose my response. Then his power and influence grew and he started living in crescendo. Well, so now he works with Brian Stevenson um, as an equal justice lawyer trying to, you know, with his with his um, firm trying to get people who are also unjustly imprisoned out. He's become an advocate and a speaker and a, an author. And his life is just expanding. He said, he said, they took my 30s, my 40s, and my 50s, but what they couldn't take was my joy. So I thought it was a cool story of, of making the choice to, to live in Crescendo. 
And this is a really unique kind of, I'm, I'm picturing maybe the avatar type person you're writing towards. You've kind of got two groups of people. You've got those people that maybe they haven't been as successful. Maybe they're older and feel like that's, that's maybe they felt before this book, it's too late. You've also got people that have felt like, well, I've already, the best is behind me. I've already done everything. What's left. Right. Is it difficult to kind of craft a message to those two types of people? Or do you see that as all the same type of person? Well, I talk about four different stages in this book um, and a couple of those you mentioned. But the first is people that are in their midlife that think, you know what, I'm 50. What am I doing? Am I as successful as I thought I'd be? I'm not where I thought I was. You know, what do I do now? Another area is pinnacle of success that you mentioned. If you think of a Jimmy Carter who was elected to be the president of the United States, but he didn't get reelected. He didn't have a great presidency. And so what happens after when he goes back to Plains, Georgia, instead of just giving expensive talks and building a library, he he saw it as this is a chance to still keep living in crescendo, to keep expanding and contributing. One year later, he's established the Carter Center for Peace. Um, he's involved in Habitat for Humanity. He and his wife have become the face of that organization. Um, he's gone on to become our greatest post-president. He wasn't our greatest president, but his life still expanded. He didn't look at, well, I'm the president of the United States. I can't get higher than that. His mentality was, where can I contribute next? What can I do? And so that's the second phase. The third one is what I talked about with Ray Hinton, life-changing experiences. Hmm. When you're faced with something, uh, a divorce, um, a, a tragedy, uh, you're, you're you um, have an illness or someone close to you dies. How are you going to respond? Is that, will that divide you or destroy you or strengthen you? How are you going to respond to what life gives you? You have a choice to make like Ray did. And then the last area is people that are in those, what I call the second half of life. When they're older, when they um, think I'm retirement age, do you just go out to pasture and, and not contribute? Or do you keep thinking, um, you know, what do I have to offer my community, still maybe in my profession, my family? How can I keep giving, even though maybe my per, per, um, profession and career is over? Mm-hmm. So and they, those people have the greatest wisdom. They, they um, have resources. They've got connections. They've got a networking that they've built their whole life. They're in the greatest opportunity to make a difference if they just see it that way. Mm-hmm. And I've read another book, so I've never been involved with AA, but I've heard that the success rates of those who do the best are the ones who start to serve in the end. They're the ones who kind of move from being student to teacher in some ways. Is that kind of where you see the across the line persistence come from for these people, like serving others? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, that's a theme that runs through the whole book. It, it, this is a quote by Pablo Picasso, kind of unusual from, from him, but it says, The meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. Mm -hmm. And so we talk in the book about um, uh, Viktor Frankl, who suffered in the Nazi death camps, talked about you don't invent your missions. You detect them. You detect within yourself, through your conscience, through your passions, through what you feel strongly about. And so we talk about that this that everyone has a unique mission to perform, something to do, a purpose that would bless other people. 
And as people age, especially, and as, as they're, as they're going through hard times, struggles, different things, if they can, if they can live outside themselves and serve other people, that, that helps solve a lot of their problems. That opens up the world to them as they're blessing others. It blesses themselves. It in turn comes back to help you. And so I, there's a lot of stories all throughout the book of, of people that have decided um, to serve. One example I'm thinking of is this older man named James Mason that was a retired FBI man. Uh, he worked for the FBI for years and became the number four man in the whole division. And um, at a certain age, I guess they retire them. And he said it didn't sit well to sit in his rocking chair and to do nothing. And he decided, I'm going to look around, see where I can help and serve. So he was in Virginia and he found out that the bus drivers were way down, that they needed bus drivers. And he applied to be a bus driver. And and the um, person that's doing the interviews, the manager in the school district, contacts him and says, you realize... (laughs) You know, you're the number, you were the number four man in the FBI and you're applying to be a bus driver and you realize what they pay. And he said, we've got to get past the idea that there are no unimportant jobs. What could be more important than serving our children and helping children get to school and being part of that educational program, educational process? He said, I continue to advance in my career. I love that. That, you know, he didn't look at it as, oh yeah, I'm a lowly bus driver now. He's like, no, this is this is serving. This is looking around my community, finding a need and and filling it and driving these kids and being part of the solution to help them in school. So anyway, just a few a few ideas of, of that kind of a mentality. You mentioned um, your, your father maybe passed away before you expected it. I imagine his legacy was part of that. What are some other kind of North Stars for you to work on this book for 10, 10 years or more to get it where it is today? Yeah. Well, um, I'm the oldest of nine kids. So my parents had nine children and um, we they weren't perfect. They weren't perfect. They were wonderful parents who really tried hard. And when they made mistakes, they would apologize to us as kids. And they uh, were really fun and spontaneous. And just, just to share a story, kind of give a little insight about what I learned from my dad. Um, when I was young, when I was 12 years old, he invited me, I'm the oldest. And so he invited me to accompany him on a business trip with him to San Francisco. But to a 12 year old, I've never been on a plane. I'm thrilled to go to San Francisco. And part of the fun was talking about it before and anticipating what we would do before we actually went. And so we had everything planned. Um, he was going to finish his presentation and he just wanted me to relax at the pool and just enjoy. He says, you've heard me before. You don't need to come. And so I came at the, I was supposed to come at the very end and then he would meet me and we would go catch a trolley car. And that was the great excitement to a 12 year old thinking of these magical trolley cars going up and down the hills of San Francisco. And he told me what they were like and how, how fun that was. And then we would go um, shopping in some of the exp- the nice department stores and get an outfit for school. Then we had planned to take a taxi over to Chinatown. We both love Chinese food and to get some authentic Chinese food. And then we would uh, take a taxi back to the hotel just in time before they closed the pool and go swimming and then go up to the hotel room and have a hot fudge Sunday and watch the late show. And so we had this whole night planned going to do and I could hardly wait and so it was going according to plan and um, he was making his way 
back to me when tragedy struck, as I perceived it. He ran into one of his best friends from college. And he was so excited to see him and they embraced. And, and the guy said, oh, my wife and I would love to. We came to this se se seminar knowing you were here. We'd love to invite you out to we'd go down on the wharf and have some seafood tonight and catch up. And I could just see my trolley car going down the hill without me. I was devastated because he seemed so happy to see him. And he said, oh, that sounds great. I've got my daughter here. He said, oh, she's welcome to join us too. And I thought, oh, great. I, all I want to do is spend time with two old people that I don't even know instead of being with my dad on our special date. And so then I heard him say, I just kind of expected the worst. And I heard him say, you know, Bob, that sounds so fun. I would love to do that, but not tonight. Cynthia and I have a special date plan, don't we, honey? And he winked at me and grabbed my hand and we're out the door. And he said, let's go catch that trolley car. And I said, I was kind of choked up and said, but dad, that's your good friend that you haven't seen for so long. And you've told me stories about him. Don't, wouldn't you rather be with him? And he said, are you kidding me? I wouldn't miss this for anything. And you'd much rather have Chinese food, wouldn't you? Now let's go catch that trolley car. And so this example to me was representative of his character. Um, I learned the importance of relationships uh, through through how he responded to, to this other person about priorities, about trust and keeping your word and following through. And that taught me a lot. It was when I look back on my childhood, that example that seemed like a small inter you know interchange between us uh, really built a foundation, a level of trust and um, belief that I was important to my father as well as all the other kids in my family were. And they could talk about similar San Francisco stories. Mm. And that was the story that kind of stands out to me from growing up. Mm. I'm kind of curious where you're at now, thinking about the subject of living life and Crescendo and the best work ahead of you. After finishing the book, how do you personally feel? Like, I, I kind of try to encourage people to be prolific and to put everything into the thing they're working on and not be precious with an idea, kind of empty the well and then the new ideas will come. But I'm I'm curious what your what your thoughts are right now about what's next. That's a good question. Because the subtitle of the book is your most important work is always ahead of you. And that's a main theme that rides through the uh that is throughout the whole book that despite what you've done, you still look ahead at what are you going to do next. Um, my goal right now, uh, since I finished this book and it took so long, is to promote this crescendo mentality idea by speaking to people like you on podcasts. And I've been giving some speeches and some keynotes and some different things promoting this idea of choosing to live in crescendo rather than diminuendo. But I think it's pretty easy once you have been successful. And I'm not successful like my father was, but his mentality was, you know, what's coming next? I like the analogy that he taught me. And he, he always said, don't look in the rear view mirror all the time. Don't look at what you left behind. It's like if you're driving in a car and if you were constantly looking in your rear view mirror or even looking over your shoulder at what you left, I think pretty soon you'd end up in a ditch. And so the idea is that despite looking in the rear view mirror, despite past failures or even successes, you keep looking ahead and not behind you and trying to bring about other great things because why else do we get up in the morning? You know, if we think, oh, 
you know, I've already been successful. I read, I wrote a great book. Um, I'm a, I'm been succeeded in my, my company. I'm the CEO. I've, I've made a lot of money. Well, what's next? What can you contribute maybe to your community, to your family? Maybe there's a grandson that's struggling with a drug addiction. Maybe there's someone in your neighborhood or in your, your community that you feel could use a good mentor that doesn't have a father or mother and is looking for a role model. Where can you see that you can, do you see a need in your community? Maybe with, um, you know, with the food bank or maybe with other charities or great needs that you see. How can you contribute? And what a great contribution that would be. Maybe different success than what you had before, but still very important. And who knows, it could be your most important work. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. And if it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.